You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Episode 86 with Dr. Risa Friday. Here we go. We are talking about the medical complications of eating disorders. Not every single one cannot possibly do that in one episode, but a really great start and a really, really interesting lesson. So a little bit about Dr. Friday, besides for being a dear friend of mine. She is an adolescent and young adult medicine physician. She practices in her private practice in New York City. She graduated from Cornell University, earned her medical degree from Sidney Kibble Medical College, and completed her residency in pediatrics at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital. Over there, she was the recipient of Resident Advocacy Award, followed by a three-year fellowship in adolescent medicine at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore, Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She has extensive experience and training working with patients with eating disorders across the diagnostic spectrum. So in outpatient and inpatient, she really, really knows her stuff. Her practice does focus a lot on treating eating disorders, not only eating disorders, but definitely a lot over there. Dr. Friday has been named to the New York Rising Stars in Medicine list by the New York Times Magazine multiple years in a row. She is the immediate past president of the New York Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine and is our newly elected medical liaison here at IDEP New York, which is the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, New York chapter. She is an active member of the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine, the North American Society for Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and Independent Doctors of New York. So, in summary, Dr. Friday knows her stuff. So there's our very short introduction of Dr. Friday, and let's go. Dr. Friday, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very excited about this. I mean, we've been chatting off the record, and so just really excited to bring our conversation to folks out there. Maybe before we start, can you just share a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? Sure, absolutely. So I am an adolescent medicine physician. And I um, run a private practice, a solo private practice. It's just me in Tribeca in New York City. And I think that it's helpful to explain what adolescent medicine is because so many people have not heard of that. And it's a little bit. Yeah. It's like, are you a pediatrician or are you an adult doctor? You're, I guess, in the middle. (laughs) That's exactly right. So my training initially was in pediatrics, but after I finished my residency in pediatrics, I did a fellowship for three years in adolescent medicine. And now that I'm in private practice, I can a little bit tweak it into what I want, but I generally see patients that are teens and young adults. So youngest is around 10 and oldest. uh, I like to cut people off around 30, even though people don't want to leave. So that's the general. (laughs) So you're still young adult and you're up until you're 30. 
Good to know. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so once my patients get married and, you know, have children, I'm like, okay, it's time for you to get to an adult doctor. So that's kind of how it works. Yeah. So just practically, I guess an adolescent body is not quite peds. It's not quite adult. What would you say about, I guess, the 20s? Because technically they have an adult body. So that differentiation between a pediatric body and adult body is exactly kind of the nuances of my field. It's the adolescent and young adult phases of life are all about like consistent growth and development. The body is ever changing and in some ways more rapidly than ever during these adolescent and young adult years. I mean, puberty is happening more or less. Sure. And then puberty ends. Yes. But sort of adjusting to this new adult body. So, and then the other thing is, is that very much going on during this whole time are the adjustments in the brain and mental health and emotional health and, you know, just mentation in general. And so that's a big part of my practice. Yeah. So besides for, I mean, you see a lot of people with general issues, but you're also an eating disorder doctor. So you see a lot of people with eating disorders. I mean, it's sort of prime time for the development of an eating disorder. So I guess that makes sense. But even as your role as an eating disorder doctor, what do you do? So you're exactly right. I think the reason that adolescent medicine physicians in general have this subspecialty of managing patients with eating disorders is because it tends to be the typical age, which an eating disorder develops, not always, but often. And so it's become a a bit of a niche of mine. And I really enjoy the medical management of eating disorders among my patients. So what does that mean? So, you know, I see patients that are referred to me for eating disorders, or maybe patients that are referred to me for other reasons, or maybe they're just coming to me for primary care. And then I detect perhaps an eating disorder or disordered eating or body image issues or nutritional deficiencies or whatever it may be. Um, But what I am doing on my end is trying to evaluate and then improve upon the physical and medical health of my patients. And because it's simply impossible to separate the physical and the mental health, there's a lot of overlap between my role and the colleagues that I work so closely with in like the psychiatric world and the therapists and nutritionists. But really, I'm sticking to the medical management. So I can give you lots of examples, but basically when a patient walks through my door, I am physically examining them and using all of my ancillary tests, whether that be labs or um, imaging studies or whatever it may be to figure out how well or not well a patient's body is. So maybe let's do that first. What do you look for when somebody (laughs) walks in with an eating disorder? Or is that (laughs) too loaded a question? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's actually, I mean, I think one thing that fascinates me so much about eating disorders is that they affect the entire body. I mean, literally Mm -hmm. from the hair growing out of patient's head to the circulation to their toes. It is every single part of the body and then deep within everything from the, you know, functioning of the heart and the processing of the brain. And that's what's so, you know, amazing. And that's what I'm trying to evaluate on day one. So I can be very specific, you know, first and foremost, one of the things you learn in medical school is that your exam starts when a patient walks through the door. I mean, I can just look at my patients and look at um, physically how they present and 
their uh, demeanor and how well or unwell they are. And it's usually fairly clear from the get-go what I'm working with. And then comes the much more elaborate Wait, can you give me an example of what you mean? So when a patient first walks through my door, I am, like I said, trying to evaluate them both physically and emotionally and mentally. So of course their demeanor and their um, sort of psychiatric exam is important, whether or not this patient is depressed, whether or not this patient is extremely anxious or agitated. All of that, of course, is really important. I mean, I have definitely seen patients who are so starving that they're really just turned off in so many ways. I mean, their affect is just so blunted. So that kind Mm -hmm. of information just from the get-go is really important. But of course, I'm also going to do a pretty extensive physical exam. Back up, I first get a long history. I'm typically speaking to the patient, but it's important to add that in adolescent medicine, I work with patients of all ages. So a lot of my patients are really young. I mean, when I have a 12-year-old walk through my door, clearly their parent is accompanying them and is an important part of the history that's going to be provided to me. That said, even for a 12-year-old, I feel so strongly that a patient should have autonomy and um, be able to give me their story. So I almost always, unless a patient's very uncomfortable. So I will often meet independently with the patient and independently with the parent, and then usually with everyone together. So that's the history. And then I would move on to an exam and my exam's pretty extensive. I start out with vital signs. Vital signs, you know, tell so much about the health of the body heart rate, blood pressure, height, weight, things like that. And when you're evaluating a patient with an eating disorder, typically we do what's called orthostatic vital signs, which means that you have a patient laying flat on their back. And then you repeat the vital signs, sometimes sitting and then standing, or sometimes just straight to standing. There are a few different ways to do it, but essentially you're trying to figure out how the body compensates for the change in gravity. And that's something that gets totally out of whack when the body is starving. Oh, interesting. Do you know why it gets out of whack when the body is serving? I do know why it gets out of whack. (laughs) (laughs) I do. So there are a few different reasons, but the main two, one, sometimes it's just simple dehydration. I mean, think Mm -hmm. about it when you're really, really dehydrated and you stand up and you sort of see stars, like that's Mm -hmm. fairly common, but you can have an incredibly well hydrated person who still stands up and feels like they're about to faint. And usually when that happens from starvation, it's actually a reaction in the autonomic nervous system where the body is not compensating correctly for the change in gravity. I mean, one of the things that that is the theme for what the body is doing in starvation is preservation mode. It is trying to keep that core functioning going. So keep the heart beating, keep the brain mentating a little bit, keep blood circulating sort of, but it's not going to bother doing those things in any extra or unnecessary way. So like you stand up and all that blood is going to fall immediately to your toes, but most people have really strong hearts and really good blood pressure that pump the blood correctly up to the brain. But the autonomic nervous system is in charge of that. And in a starving patient, it it just really doesn't work very well. Yeah. So just to go back to the vitals in terms of what happens in somebody who's starving, what do their vitals look like? Or is it too low, too high? Great question. So 
Okay, so vitals, we are going to see a lot of things. So first we can take heart rate. Typically in a patient who's starving, they will have what's called bradycardia, meaning that their heart rate is too slow. And that's for exactly the reasons I was talking about. The heart is not gonna bother pumping quickly. It doesn't even have enough energy. The heart is a muscle. And a lot of times the heart is atrophied because all muscles in the body are atrophied during starvation. So that's Mm -hmm. one thing you're gonna see. Also, a lot of times you'll see hypotension, which means low blood pressure for the same kind of reasons we were talking about before. The body is not pumping blood through the vessels with a lot of strength. And it also has to do with the nervous system and the sort of uh, tenseness of the vessels is not ideal. And height and weight. So typically, and again, I think we should probably clarify that the direction this conversation is going is about starvation. And many times patients with eating disorders have, you know, restrictive eating disorders, like an anorexia picture in which they are starving. There are, of course, other eating disorders, whether that be binge eating disorder or whatnot, where what we're talking about is not necessarily the picture I'll see. And that's Mm -hmm. always something I keep in mind. But for starvation, what we're talking about holds true. So typically the weight will be quite low, not necessarily in cases of atypical anorexia, but for certain patients. And sometimes in younger patients who have not finished going through puberty or growth and development, their height might be stunted. And I think this is a perfect time to mention that one of the first things I'm going to do when I'm evaluating patients' growth, like height and weight, is look back at their natural trajectory. So I really help. it really helps me when parents or patients will bring their growth curves from childhood, mm-hmm. from like even toddler years. So I can see what that patient's natural body weight would be if they had grown along their curve without stunting uh, by the time they reached, you know, the age of today. So that really helps me. I'm not comparing them necessarily just to like every patient that walks through my door. I'm comparing them to where they should be if they had grown mm-hmm. along their curve. Yeah. So those are the basics of what you check for. Um, I'm assuming there's a whole lot more you know, mm-hmm. just sort of like things that we throw around. Oh, let's get blood work. Like what, mm-hmm. what blood work? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, you know, yeah. What, what blood work? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you something that sort of answers both vital signs and blood work. One of the other things that I'm looking for, and this is only for patients assigned female at birth is whether or not they're menstruating. So getting their periods. And I actually, so I'm going to look in the blood work for evidence of that. So the, the, the first answer to your question is I'm going to look at hormones, but the second mm-hmm. answer is that I also consider periods to be a vital sign. So I want to know oh, when the patient's last period was assuming they've had their period, because if they're not getting it and they should be, that to me is just as important as their heart rate. That's a sign of starvation. So in the blood work, I'm going to look at for both females and males, I'm going to look at sex hormones, things like estrogen and testosterone, things like what's called FSH and LH, which are the hormones that are coming from the brain that basically tell the body to make estrogen and progesterone. And when the body is sick or starving, they all of these hormones tend to be very suppressed, something we call hypothalamic suppression. Um, so that's definitely one of the things I'm looking in the blood work. Would you like to hear more? <laughs> All of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think a theme of my visits is determining whether or not my patients are medically stable. So okay. for example, you know, a lot of my patients who are restricting or very starving or patients who might 
purge, such as intentional vomiting, things like that, I want to look at their electrolytes. Mm -hmm. That's very important. Things like sodium, potassium, phosphorus, things like that. And that's, you know, I always keep in mind that I'm drawing their blood at one point in time. And those numbers definitely change, especially with more risky behaviors. But I want to make sure that the body is keeping the electrolytes and the fluids in the body in the right places, basically. So well, what actually happens? Because I once had this patient tell me that she's purging pretty regularly, but don't worry, I take potassium. First of all, very concerning statement. <laughs> but also, yes. what what actually happens in the body? Say somebody's purging pretty regularly. How does it affect their electrolytes? Oh, okay. Well, that's a lot. Um, there's a lot of science going on. I'm going to give you some examples. Basically, when you are purging and specifically by purging on in this sense, we mean vomiting because yeah. I, w- I want to clarify laxative abuse could be considered purging as well. And you might sure. have a whole different slew of electrolytes if you're constantly purging that way. But so for the sake of vomiting, if you think about it, one of the things that's happening is you are vomiting up stomach acid, right? So one of the things that happens is you have what we call alkalosis, which means that you are, your body becomes too basic. So we're talking about the acid base status of the body, but you Mm -hmm. are vomiting up acid. So your body is depleted of acid. Also you're vomiting potassium. And so your body then becomes depleted of potassium and potassium, you know, the body works extremely hard, the kidneys specifically to keep all of our electrolytes extremely in check. That is how our bodies function. I always say to patients, what is an EKG? It's an electrocardiogram because literally your heart runs on electricity and the electricity is generated by electrolytes, potassium, sodium, and that's what's telling your heart to run. And so if those electrolytes become off kilter, you could end up in an arrhythmia or cardiac arrest. So if you are vomiting and and very acutely deplete yourself of potassium, you could go into cardiac arrest because your heart responds and doesn't beat correctly. Wow. And how does sodium play into this? So also a little complicated, but um, I think the, the easiest way to say it would be that if you are really dehydrated from excessive vomiting, your sodium is going to be high. Let's say a patient is one of the things I look for um, is something called water loading. A patient Mm -hmm. might be drinking excessive fluid so that it makes their weight look higher on the scale, but really it's all just fluid that can dilute the blood so much that the sodium is really low. Um, So those Mm -hmm. are two examples of how sodium, why I look at sodium. I'll also Mm -hmm. look at their urine a urinalysis to see just how dilute the the urine is. I'm looking to see is there are there ketones in the urine because the patient hasn't been, you know, eating any sugar. Is there? I mean, there's a lot of different. We could go into a lot of this. Um, well, all the different yeah. things I'm looking for, and I'm I'm comparing the urinalysis with the blood test results at the same time so that I can okay. see, for example, if a patient's sodium is really low. And their urine is extremely dilute. That's really, really indicative of water loading. Like they have mm-hmm. way too much fluid in their body, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might not be water loading for the purpose of increasing the scale. It might be that sometimes I have patients who want to 
have something in their stomach because they want to feel full in some way, but they wouldn't dare eat food. And so water is their go-to and that's going to give you the same result medically. Yeah. Okay. So just going back to the blood work, what else? I know that you can't possibly tell us everything, but what Mm -hmm. else do you look for? All right. Well, let's talk a little bit. uh, Well, okay. I think that it's important to mention, as we said at the very beginning, eating disorders and starvation really affect the entire body. So I'm looking at organ functioning too. I'm looking at the kidneys. Is there an acute kidney injury from something that's happening in the body? I'm looking at the liver. One of the things I'll see in patients who are starving is abnormal liver enzymes. So all of the, you know, the organs, how they're working. I also look at the thyroid. So the thyroid is a metabolic organ, but it runs on hormones basically. So this is kind of in my hormone panel. I will look at the hormones coming from the brain to stimulate the thyroid and then the hormones produced by the thyroid themselves. And when someone is really starving, basically none of it works. There is a term in medicine called sick euthyroid. Patients' bodies become sick for many reasons. Maybe they have a chronic illness. Maybe they have an acute severe illness, like a diabetic who's all of a sudden poorly controlled um, or goes into diabetic shock, for lack of a better term. These kinds of trauma to the body can impact the thyroid. Well, what we know is that just starving dramatically impacts the thyroid. And I can actually track patients' levels of nutrition looking at their hormones that are produced by the thyroid. So specifically, I will track what's called T3, which is one of the hormones produced by the thyroid, and see if it improves over time, which can be very indicative of improving nutrition over time, assuming the patient doesn't have, does not have any other medical conditions that could be impacting it. Are there any other levels that you look for in the blood work or that's just sort of getting into too nitty gritty here? No, I mean, there. I can keep going. I mean, I look at a lot of things and, and I'll, I'll just take a minute to say, when you asked me at the beginning, what does an eating disorder doctor do? I think there's a big difference between someone like me who is working with patients with eating disorders day in and day out and really knows what to look for in the blood, in in their vital signs, in the way that I'm evaluating their bodies from beginning to end. That's very different than an average medical provider. Let's say Mm -hmm. a patient is referred to me who just goes to their pediatrician, who's really, really knowledgeable about a lot of things, but Maybe eating disorders isn't their specialty. And I find that they haven't checked a lot of these labs. Same thing with an internist or whomever it may be. And so sometimes I have patients that really think that they're actually much healthier than they really are because I know Mm. to look for some of these. So I'll give you another example. I like to keep my eye on a, a muscle protein breakdown product called creatine kinase or CK or CPK. When a patient's over-exercising and just burning their muscles all the time, rather than building up muscle, which is the whole point, the muscles start to break down and they will release levels of CPK into the blood. And that can actually lead to a dangerous medical condition called rhabdomyolysis, which is something that only really major athletes know about because it's something major athletes need to really make sure that they're fueling their body and protecting their muscles and giving themselves breaks and hydrating. Well, a lot of times our patients with eating disorders don't do any of that. And so their bodies can go completely awry. And that's another thing I'll measure. 
That's so interesting. So besides for the blood work, unless there are other things that you can sprinkle them in, besides for the blood work, what else do you look for? So moving away from blood work, I, a lot of times I will look for, okay, well, one thing I will do usually is get an EKG because I want to make sure Mm -hmm. specifically if a patient has some abnormal whether it be abnormal vital signs like bradycardia or, you know, some sort of abnormal heartbeat or anything I detect or a murmur, I of course want to make sure that their baseline heart functioning is adequate. And a really quick and easy way to do that is to have a patient get an EKG so that I can just look and see at this moment in time, the heart is beating correctly. Again, it's all tough because it's only that moment in time and a patient can end up purging and throw off their electrolytes and everything goes south. But at least I have a baseline EKG to know that the heart is capable of functioning normally. Um, Some patients who are particularly sick, I'll definitely have them have a cardiology visit to get an echocardiogram and perhaps some more intensive heart studies. Certain patients I will have get a DEXA scan, which is a bone density study. Typically I'm doing this in patients who have been missing. So in female patients, patients who've been missing their periods, situation called amenorrhea. Either they never got their period for the first time, which is primary amenorrhea, or they had their period and then they lost it, which is secondary. Because we know that estrogen, which is a female's main sex hormone, is like the most important fuel for developing bone density or improving your bone density over time. Calcium and vitamin D are very important too, as is just food, but estrogen is really, really important. So if the estrogen has been suppressed for a long time, one of the things that we see is decrease in bone density and then potentially long-term risks of fractures and things like that. And I will also get this in my male patients as well, especially those who um, are really, really undernourished or might have low testosterone levels, things like that. So they'll also go for a DEXA. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is there are just a lot less guidelines around interpreting DEXAs in men and boys specifically, because it's highly unusual for doctors to order that. It's really only the eating disorder doctors, typically, typically. Yeah. Which is another reason why you'd have to really know yourself with eating disorders. Cause like, why, why would you even think? I can't tell you how many times I've sent a patient for a DEXA scan at a new radiology center. And they call me and say, why are you sending me this patient? You know, she's 16. I only do DEXAs on patients, you know, who've gone through menopause. I'm like, okay, well, let me explain it to you. So yeah, no, it's a really, it's a nuanced field in a lot of ways. Yeah. Is there anything else that stands out to you? Something that you automatically do as part of your workup with an eating disorder patient when they first walk through the door? Um, Well, I didn't mention that I do do check a lot of nutritional levels in the blood. Of course, I'm looking at patients' iron levels. Are they anemic? I'm looking at certain vitamins. Is that typical? Anemia? Is anemia Mm -hmm. typical? Not necessarily because one of the reasons that adolescent girls are often anemic is because they have really heavy periods. So actually Mm. many of my patients, for example, with anorexia, haven't had periods in so long that they're not losing a lot of iron. Um, So it's actually not necessarily something I find all the time, but I have a lot of patients who are vegetarian or vegan or have a lot of dietary preferences or just don't eat. Um, who have nutritional deficiencies like iron deficiency. I see a lot of B12 or cobalamin deficiency, sometimes folate, zinc, things like that. So I'll check, you know, a decent panel to evaluate their nutritional status, along with typically having my patients work with a nutritionist and collaborating closely. 
Yeah. I get this often. I'm sure you get it all the time where people are like, why do I have to get my blood work done more than once? Especially mm-hmm. if it, they're at the stage where it has to be done weekly or something yeah. pre- just pretty frequent. Um, what would you say to that? Oh, great question. I would say, I wish I could be doing your blood work all day, every day for exactly the reasons I'm saying <laughs> that blood work's changing constantly. I mean, one, one blood test on a Wednesday is moot sometimes by Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it's, it's scary. Really? Yeah. I mean, like if that patient's purging or using laxatives or, or, you know, excessively running, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. but the main reason other than just constantly checking in on medical stability is also tracking things. So if a patient is improving nutritionally over time, I think it's one of the most rewarding things to watch a patient's estrogen go from being completely undetectable to suddenly turning on and then increasing over time. And then sure enough, eventually a period might come back. Or like I said, I track, I like to track that T3 level from the thyroid, which really does improve over time and can be pretty quick to improve. I mean, one really solidly nutritious week can pretty dramatically improve a T3. And it's a really nice to have some, some data other than mm-hmm. the weight on the scale. And I don't love the weight on the scale. The, the number on the scale can change if a patient is constipated. It can be elevated. If a patient's water loading, as we talked about, if a patient ate a lot of sodium and has fluid retention, or, you know, there's just, it's not that, that accurate. There's different scales that have different, that are calibrated differently. Whereas some of these numbers in the blood are a little bit more reliable. Do you track for A1C or blood glucose? Like, do you check any of those? And if you do, like, what do they mean? Great question. So some of these labs like insulin and glucose, or maybe even cholesterol, what we sort of traditionally think of as like more of the metabolic health labs, mm-hmm. I will generally check A1C and insulin and glucose the chronic issue in someone who's starving is that they're not having much sugar. So generally I'm not really seeing anything abnormal other than potentially hypoglycemia, which I see plenty, but like the chronic measures like a hemoglobin A1C are typically normal in cholesterol. On the other hand is really interesting, actually sort of in a backward sense, the body often develops hyperlipidemia in a starvation phase. There's a few different reasons for that, but basically someone who might otherwise have completely normal cholesterol might have a completely wonky cholesterol panel in the starvation state. And then eventually over time, when their body returns to a more healthy place, their cholesterol normalizes, or perhaps they genetically have high cholesterol. I mean, there's all different things, but yes, I will typically do labs for a new patient and then follow them if there's abnormalities that I'm looking for. Wait, one second. Why would someone's cholesterol be affected so dramatically? So the body does certain things to protect itself, as we were talking about earlier. And sometimes it doesn't really make that much logical sense. One of the ways I'll explain this to patients sometimes is if you think about it, when you're hungry and your stomach makes noise, right? Your stomach churns and you can even hear it out loud sometimes. Really what's happening theoretically is that your stomach is quote digesting, but there's no food in it. So that doesn't really make any sense. Okay. But that's kind of what happens sometimes to the body in the starving state. So to put it in the most simple terms, sometimes when the body is seeing so few nutrients that it needs to digest, the body starts churning out 
lipids in order to digest them. It's a counterintuitive phenomenon and it doesn't really make that much sense, but it's something we'll see. Wow. Uh, I mean, who would have thought? I guess I, so I have a question in terms of when somebody is like working toward recovery and say Mm -hmm. they've been eating more nutrients or whether it's a week or a month, do you Mm -hmm. see the changes in the blood work or any of the workups change in a direction that's not necessarily linear in an upward or in certain cases, a downward trajectory? Like, is there any case where something goes wonky during the quote refeeding? Oh my gosh, all the time. (laughs) It's so not an exact science. I'll tell you about a patient that I, that I just had in my office, um, who unfortunately actually is now hospitalized because it was really tough. And then it, and it can be really, really tough and scary and dangerous and risky in the beginning stages. This is a patient actually with ARFID avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, who was young 13 and had been really, really undernourished for a long time. And I started working with her and the family and the patient were really motivated to improve her health and were doing a phenomenal job increasing her caloric intake fairly quickly. Like she went from, you know, maybe having 400 to 600 calories a day. When I met her, she was really, really, really starving to quickly under supervision by me and under supervision with a nutritionist and a family-based therapist working on quadrupling her caloric intake. And then eventually she was eating 2,500 calories a day, but she was not gaining any weight. And the reason for that is a lot of times when a patient is very starving, when the body is just really has such a deficit, it becomes hypermetabolic. So basically you can give calories and calories and calories, but the body just churns through them and metabolizes every morsel of food so quickly, it doesn't store anything. And that's one of the reasons that sometimes patients who are so starving end up needing thousands of calories and sometimes need hospitalization. In that scenario, in a really starving scenario, the other fear is what's called refeeding syndrome, Mm -hmm. which can be a little complicated, but the, the concept is that when the body is so starving, and you start to give it nutrients, it basically freaks out. And one of the things that we look for are what are these electrolyte shifts and fluid shifts where the body cannot compensate for the nutrients it's being given and it all goes awry. And so for a patient who's really, really um, extremely or especially chronically starving, it's much safer to do the first few, at least weeks of refeeding in a hospital where they can have their blood drawn pretty much daily to monitor their electrolytes and can be examined constantly for edema, which is like swelling of the, you know, extremities or things like that. Um, They can have their heart rate monitored closely and things like that, because it can actually be dangerous to feed someone who has been chronically starving. Wow. So just in the interest of time, I have one more question and uh, obviously there's so much more to cover here, but in patients who are purging through vomiting that there's, I mean, there are so many complications with that, but what about when somebody starts vomiting blood? Like, what does that mean? Is that a reason to freak out yesterday or Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. what's the story with that? 
Okay. So if you were sitting down to take an adolescent medicine board exam and you have a patient who is vomiting blood and then becomes medically unstable quite quickly, you would be worried about what's called a Mallory Weiss tear, which is a tear in the esophagus. And yeah, I mean, chronic vomiting it's not just building up acid, uh, you know, uh, vomiting up acid up, up your esophagus constantly, but it's real trauma, physical trauma to your GI system. And yeah, you can tear a hole in your esophagus. In practice, in clinical practice, what I will tell you is that I've had a number of patients who intentionally vomit and who have seen blood in their vomit at times, and it does not turn into profuse bleeding. They don't become hypotensive or anything like that. And it's clearly not a Mallory Weiss tear, but I think there's capillaries and vessels that can burst again from trauma or just the acid wearing down on the esophagus, esophagitis, and that can produce some blood. But yes, heck yes, it's scary. I mean, this is, I think my job can be really scary. My patients can be extremely sick and unfortunately, often don't have the insight into just how sick they are and can continue to engage in behaviors that make them sicker rather than healthier. Yeah, which is also, you know, part of the dilemma that we often encounter is that people just don't believe that they're, quote, sick enough. That's something that we hear all the time. That person's sicker or I'm not experiencing X or just period, I'm not sick enough. And (laughs) very often, I mean, not very often if someone's walking through the door, they already are. But in your case, it seems like people are so much sicker very often than they think that they are because they're not reading any of these numbers. Well, I think that's one thing that's interesting about my job. And I sometimes say my job so much easier than my, you know, my colleagues who are therapists and psychiatrists, because I have these numbers that can serve as really, really, you know, interesting and moving data points for a patient who was so sure she was healthy. And then all of a sudden they say, you have the level of estrogen of a prepubescent, you know, five-year-old and your bones are going to break. That's really upsetting to a lot of patients and could potentially be a a huge motivator to improve. Yeah. But it's not easy. All right. So again, for the interest of time, I'll let you go here, but thank you very much for joining us. And before I do let you go, can you share with our Mm -hmm. listeners where they can find you? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I have a website. My practice is called Tribeca Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine. So Tribeca A-Y-A-M. You can find me at TribecaAYAM.com. Say that six times fast. (laughs) (laughs) And you can email me and you can call me and you can fax me because doctors still fax. So um, you still fax? (laughs) How do you get a fax? Luckily they come through the computer, but yes, faxing is still a thing in the medical world. And I think nowhere what? else. I know, I know, I know, I know. It's, hip- it's HIPAA sensitive. So it's, it's good. <laughs> good to know. Um, so yeah, look me up, please contact me. I have a new associate starting to work with me in July, which is really exciting. And, and by the way, we see patients without eating disorders too. We do a lot of reproductive health. <laughs> put in IUDs and implants for contraception, sexually transmitted infections, mental health. And we dabble in a little bit of psychiatry. So we wear a lot of hats over here. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to pick your brain again then for that stuff. (laughs) Cool. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly 
to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.